You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Chelsea. And today we're going to cover a case that doesn't seem to be very well known from anyone that I've talked to or even looking through information about him. And honestly, when you look at pictures and just like the basic information, he seems like an all-American guy. And today we're going to be talking about David Lee Branton. He was living in Allentown at the time of his disappearance. Uh, He was very successful and professional, I guess, looking from the outside at him. If you, you know, just a casual relationship, you'd think he had it all. Uh, He graduated from Lehigh University, and then he went on to Temple University's Beasley School of Law. He owned a law office at 921 Hamilton Street in Allentown, and he was also a member of the Allentown Racquetball and Fitness Club, which back then was like the thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not so much anymore, but you know. (laughs) Now, this club was located at the intersection of Union Street and 6th Street, and it had opened in the 80s, and it was like I said, doing very well at the time that David had his membership. Um, it's like not there anymore. I guess it abruptly closed in 2010, um, plus all the other locations that were owned by the CEO, John F. Brinson. I guess they he went bankrupt. Uh, he couldn't afford anything like a parent. It's like a crazy story. I don't know why I dove so deeply into it, but it was just so crazy. But anyway, that was the reason I was talking about it is the last place that David was seen was apparently at this uh racquetball club and this was on january 7th 1993 and they saw him leaving approximately at 11 a.m but i did see another article and it was talked about by his sister jennifer that there was a funeral that day for his grandmother and i just wonder maybe was it earlier and then he went not really sure it doesn't give a time frame oh yeah yeah but still i feel like like funerals aren't usually that early that he would be through a funeral in enough time to get to the club, play a round of racquetball or whatever he was doing, and then be leaving the club by 11 That's what I thought. I mean, that'd be like a sunrise um, funeral or something, which is still possible, but I just feel like it's not as typical. Now, the only thing that I could think is like for my mom we had her i guess like service but at the time one of my family members couldn't be present and it was very important to my grandmother that they be there for the burial so like we had the service and then a couple months later early in the morning like we had had to make all the arrangements to have the plot dug for her to be buried so it was like a really fast like run through ceremony at the actual grave site and then put her in and then we left so i don't know if it was like maybe something like that yeah maybe i don't know that's interesting yeah so there wasn't a time and i think it's weird because that's something that could definitely be corroborated i mean if you're going to a funeral shit ton of people are gonna see you so like i don't know but i only saw it in one article whereas i saw him leaving the club it's mentioned on like the major sites like the charlie project and um for some reason he's listed in the dough network even though interesting he's clearly not a dough but yeah 
So at the time of his disappearance, David was living with a roommate. They never mentioned his name. So I'll just say roommate. Uh, it was discovered that David never came home that day. Uh, the roommate came back on the 7th later that night. He did notice that David's car was at the apartment, but it wasn't in his typical spot. The car was parked um, across the street when he typically parked behind the apartment. So that's kind of a red flag. And I mean, if you're living there for a long time, you know, we all have our habits. I don't, it didn't specifically say that he had a specific parking spot, but I lived in an apartment complex and no one had parking spots, but everyone seemed to park in the same spot every single time. Mm -hmm. um, so he did think that was weird, but when he went in the room, you know, nothing was out of the ordinary. His medicines were still there. He had all his clothing. It didn't look like he packed anything up, but... He didn't immediately contact the police because he didn't really think anything of it because David had a history of substance abuse and had previously left the area before. And I'm sure that when he did alert police that those facts did not help the case move along. Oh, no, we'll get into that. We definitely will. I mean... Even, I know it was the 90s, so it was different than when I was in college, but to just not have, like, your roommate be back in a dorm or a house or an apartment or whatever that night, like, who's to say he didn't just go somewhere and meet someone and is hanging out with them? Like, right. you know, it, it wouldn't, the car being in a weird place would throw me off a little bit, but, you know, aside from that, it wouldn't necessarily throw me to a oh i need to call police right this yeah second. something that like sort raises your so eyebrow I... but doesn't necessarily set off alarm bells right right it was totally a different time too like not constantly connected oh, yeah. no social media but him being in contact with family and friends was like a huge red flag for this roommate because even when he would leave he would still be communicating but mm -hmm. Right. This time he wasn't. And that kind of made him uneasy. So after a couple of days, it doesn't specify like how many days, just as a couple, he um ended up calling the police. So when the police showed up, there was nothing out of the ordinary, like I said before. Um, They didn't think that it pointed to foul play at all. The big thing for me was like his medicine was still there. So like, don't you kind of need that? It was an everyday medicine. And in all the articles, it said for the medication was for an unspecified reason, which we'll get into later. But no one would none of the articles, not even the family would disclose what the medication was for. But if you have medication, you probably need to take it. So like, right, right. Isn't that a red flag? Right. I mean, if it's daily it's daily for a reason and if it's some sort of like rescue medication then you still want to have that on you in case you end up needing it yep so after a month captain scott mitchell said that he still didn't Ugh, i could talk that he didn't suspect foul play but like after a month that's a really long time and the articles kind of seem to suggest that he would only ever really be away for like maybe a week at a time and a month is a very big difference yeah right so, like I said before, this is a case with, like, basically zero information. Um, and I was just kind of baffled. I thought because he was a lawyer, there would be way more. And I don't know if that's just, like, a silly judgment. Like, he was a white professional. You would think that there would be more on it. But there was, there, I think there's only, there's less than a dozen um, stories covered about his case. And this happened years ago. So it just kind of surprised yeah. me. 
Is the rest of his family wealthy? Could they be suppressing it just for Oh, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. (laughs) Got it. That is... Oh, this sounds like it's going to get fun. It's going to be interesting. But talking about his family, they have not talked about it really at all. Very private about it. Um, His sister did do an article in Morning Call, but was very short and really wouldn't answer the questions at all anyway, so it seemed kind of pointless. So outside of the Charlie Project and the Dote Network, I could only find four articles from the morning call regarding his actual disappearance, though there were a lot of other articles about him because he was a prosecutor. Um, So about like doing some of his cases and there are some other reasons why um, he was in the news and we'll get to that later. So there just wasn't much. I'm not sure if a lot of you remember, I've apparently done a lot of cases in the Lehigh Valley and the newspapers that covers that is the morning call. Um, yeah. And they do the Lehigh Valley and the Allentown areas. So they did have the most information on it. I also did locate on Find a Grave um, website, a classmate of his from high school posted a memorial page. So even though there's like really not a grave, there's a memorial for him. And the friend kind of said, you know, I don't know if I feel bad for putting a memorial if he's still alive or if he's dead, not getting, you know, a a memorial at all, just because everyone doesn't know. Right. But apparently like David left a huge lasting impression on this classmate. Um, Didn't put his name, but the classmate says they weren't close. But if he was so compelled, I mean, this page is long. It took me like an hour to read through. Like, if you don't really know somebody, but you're compelled enough to write that to me, it makes it feel like it's not you didn't really know them very well. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, there's a lot of information in it. Um, but this classmate says that they were in catechism classes together and they were in high school together he said in high school david was the vice president while this classmate was a secretary and in school david was the class president he was on the swim team he was a member of the key club which i think is part of the kiwanis club i think off the top it of is head. okay yep and he participated in the golf club so clearly he was very involved in school and yeah you know obviously put in a lot of hard work this classmate claimed that david came from a quote-unquote good family. David's father was a pediatrician and he had multiple siblings. His father died in 2005 and in the obituary, he lists his son David L as his late son of Allentown. So to me, it seems that they consider him dead, you know, at that time. Yeah. This classmate also said that David was so careful with his body because he was an athlete. Apparently, he would give his classmate a hard time for even smoking cigarettes. He is skeptical of this claim of substance abuse. Yet in November 1991, in the morning call, it was listed that David Brandon, 31, was charged with drunkenness and disorderly conduct. And I kind of think as we grow up, we drastically change. I mean, our brain maturity extends well past teenage years, and some say it isn't even fully developed until we're 25. And just because we're someone in high school doesn't mean we're going to be the same person throughout our entire life, you know? I am not at all who I was in high school. (laughs) Same. Thank God I'm not. Uh, But I mean, this is entirely speculation, but he came, it seemed, from a pretty hardworking family and he did a lot in high school. He became a lawyer. So maybe it was just that he was under a lot of pressure. So that could certainly lead to some substance abuse. 
So I don't think it totally like doesn't make sense. And I think another part of it too might be being the athlete that he was, he may have been very much against inhaling anything, but you know, you can get high from not just smoking things. So it might've been like the actual act of smoking the cigarette that he was like, Oh, don't do that to your lungs. Like, you know, the athlete side of him, because, you know, if you are even like, I think about like weed smoking it versus having like an edible, like people very much prefer some sort of edible to smoking it because of that reason, at least people that I know. Um, So, I mean, it's quite possible that he might say, you know, oh, get that cigarette out of your mouth. That's horrible for you, but still be doing something that is shot up or ingested in a different way or like alcohol because you're drinking it. So it's not, it doesn't affect your body as much in the short term, more so the long term, if that makes sense. So maybe that's part of that separation of the cigarette versus the allegations of other substances. True. I didn't think about that. So I did talk about how a sister Jennifer talked to the morning call, and this was two years after the disappearance. Her full name is Jennifer Lancaster, and she wouldn't confirm or deny if she thought David was missing or dead at that two-year mark. She did confirm that when he first went missing, the family wasn't overly concerned. She said that along with the police, they thought that he purposely left the area, though after those two years, she, I suppose, started questioning if it was voluntary or not. But she did say she doesn't think she will ever hear from him again. So to me, that makes me think that at the time, the family definitely concluded that he was you know, possibly dead. Jennifer didn't want to discuss David's disappearance because the family thought that the media could do little more than rekindle the pain they've tried to overcome. And I will say I totally don't agree with this um, or that type of philosophy because something happened. Someone has to know something like with such little publicity at the time of the disappearance. I think it was a total wrong choice. I think part of that comes to from our ability to look back on it and see how much media has helped in a lot of cases, especially since, you know, the turn of the century, which makes me feel really old for saying the turn of the century. But I mean, since since technology really took over, um, like when the computers didn't all blow up on Y2K, you know, I think that the perception of being able to get out in media is attractive now in a way that people can get out in their own way, like rather than having to go to newspapers or go to media sources, you know, if something happened in my family now in 2022, I could start a Facebook page. I could get all over Twitter. I could speak as me for me, if that makes sense. And in the nineties, that was much less of a possibility. I mean, you could go to newspapers, but if they didn't want to print it, they weren't going to print it. And same for like any sort of like news station. And I think a lot of it too is just how people deal with pain and grief. I mean, five years ago, I would never have wanted to talk about like a case in my family on the media. But, you know, now just as I've matured and, you know, my brain is now beyond the age of 25, you know, I would absolutely go to the media. So I think part of it too is just the people and how they handle grief. But also, it's a lot easier to look back from 2022 and say, oh, media can be really good and helpful. Um, So I fully agree that media is super helpful. But 
I feel like it was probably an entirely different beast in when was this 95? 93. 93. Okay. So this, it may have been a completely different beast to try to tackle at that point. Maybe, maybe if not media, like they weren't hanging out missing posters. They weren't like looking into it. That's fair too. I mean, there was nothing. Okay. Yeah. That's fair too. I don't know. I just feel like if it could just be the smallest thing someone noticed or maybe someone thought, oh, that was weird. And maybe it pertained to the case, but they wouldn't know that unless it was like, hey, did you see this? Like this person went missing with something out of the ordinary in this area, something like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's the smallest thing, like just seeing one person at one location can totally change the narrative of a case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, I'll let that go. Not happy about it, but you know. Um, also in '95, Crime Stoppers offered a $1,000 reward for information. Though today the case is no longer in their database. The classmate that put up this memorial said that he called the police to find out why the case isn't on Crime Stoppers anymore. And he claims when he called, they told him just had a homicide, so no one's available to check it out. Oh, so, like, they were busy. Yep. Basically. Okay, I see. Was it on their database at one point, and then it was pulled off, or was it just never on it? No, no, it was on it. That's so weird. Yeah, I thought that was weird. Definitely thought that was weird. So then, again, in 1995, 1995 was a big year for this case, even though it didn't really bring any leads. Uh, in Canada, there was an unidentified white male who was discovered July 28th. This man threw himself in front of a train. Apparently, he was high. Yes, yeah, uh, he was hiding in a ditch, and when the train was close enough, he rolled onto the tracks. The crew were unable to stop on time, and it uh, estimated that the train was traveling 65 to 70 kilometers per hour, which is about like 40 to 43 miles per hour for all of us over here. Um. This man clearly was killed upon impact. He had multiple similarities to David. He was a white male, brown hair, blue eyes, and he had almost the exact same build as David, like the height and weight. Police in Canada were able to find someone who had been with him days prior. He said the man gave his name as David, but he thinks he was lying about his name. You know, when he told him, because, you know, some people are weird about that identity and whatever. This John Doe didn't have any personal identification on him. Initially, oh God. Initially, they tried using his fingerprints, dental records, and x-rays, but they never hit on anything. So it's obvious that this was not our David. And the investigator on the case, which I thought was really surprising, apparently this was like their only unsolved identity case. And in because I read like the whole entire article. Um, it was like his life goal to figure out this person's identity. And it took until 2020 to figure out who it was. And they used his DNA to discover the identity of this John Joe. Now they sent the DNA in 2020 to like match it to like, you know, any family, you know, DNA or whatever to trail it down. So I don't know exactly when it was you know, his identity was truly discovered, but in 2020, that's when they sent it out to lapse, which I thought was pretty interesting. Now, I'm going to gloss over something. And if you're interested and want to learn more information and kind of go down the rabbit hole, you're more than welcome to. 
But just this year, February the 3rd, his brother, Jonathan Branton, published a book called The Honor Killing of David L. Branton, which sounds horrific. Um, And it just basically goes over the fact that he thinks his family killed David to protect their image in the community. It basically claims that his family was sick of his cocaine addiction, his homosexuality, and his HIV diagnosis. What the hell? Yep. Woof. Yeah. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Oh yeah. A lot of information. Ugh. Though I will say on the Amazon reviews, it's pretty rough. Um, apparently, Jonathan is a high school English teacher. I And the only reason I... I'm saying that is because I guess for promotional reasons, him and his team sent out postcards to try to get people to like be curious about the book and want to like buy it. And it basically says, hey, I'm an English teacher. You know, I had this awful, awful tragedy happen in my family. I wrote a book about it. You know, here's a, like an like excerpt or whatever. You know, go check out this book on Amazon. So he says he's an English teacher, but apparently it was so poorly written. The reviews are all like ones. And it also says that in one of the comments on Amazon, it's obviously the vending of an angry and vengeful sibling of a victim. And apparently this book had a lot of racist and homophobic tones. Some people think it is wrong for Jonathan to capitalize on the disappearance of his brother. And he made a lot of claims in this book, but he didn't give any evidence whatsoever. The one thing I want to say with the idea of there being homophobic tones, and this is not in defense of homophobia whatsoever. If the brother is trying to argue that the family got rid of him because of homosexuality and like that was the motive or part of the motive, then it's definitely going to read like it's homophobic because you're explaining the actions of homophobic people. But you also probably could do it another way. But I haven't read it, so I don't want to judge, but that's my only consideration. Well, Um, I did. I looked through a lot of comments on different websites, and apparently, like, Jonathan made comments about how gay people aren't, like, really gay, and they just want hookups. And it's, like, more like that kind of thing. It's not mostly just a family. It is definitely homophobic. (laughs) I am actually reading some of the reviews right now. Part of one says the author constantly referring to his father as daddy was too much. (laughs) Yep. And now granted, this isn't a very long book. I think it's 90 pages like front to back. And some of those pages are like, you know, written by or like goes over that kind of stuff. So it's technically shorter. And I mean, I will even put it out there. I know I talked to you guys and was like, hey, just found out who put this book out. Like, should I read it? And I just don't think it's worth my time, especially since. Doesn't sound like it. Yeah. There was like no hard evidence and no one else in the family corroborated it, though. If you were, you know, someone saying that you killed somebody. I mean, I'm sure you probably didn't don't want to come clean with it, but like I'm sure police have looked into it. I'm not sure, but we're going to get into that, into the theories. While looking through newspapers.com, I came across a small snippet from Friday, December 31st, 1993. Uh, David Lee Branton was included in a list of names that were part of a notice of transfer of attorneys to inactive status. Um, It states, notice is hereby given that the following Lehigh County attorneys have been transferred to inactive status by order of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania dated November 22nd, 1993, pursuant to rule 219 PARDE. And 
The order became effective December 22nd, 1993. So I had to look into it because I had no idea what the hell that any of that meant. This rule basically relates to the annual registration of attorneys, which makes sense because he had been missing for almost a year at that point. And in my head, why spend so many years in school to become a lawyer to then just bounce? Like clearly something was wrong and he wasn't able to pay his yearly registration fee, let alone because you have to file um, in each state. Right. So clearly that wasn't happening. And it's just like, yes, maybe he was pressured by his family because they seem pretty prominent to become a lawyer, but I mean, that's a lot of years to dedicate your life to do something you don't want to do. I don't know. Right. But who knows? But now we're jumping into our theories, which there are a lot of, but we'll we'll go through them. So there was an article. I want to say it was in the morning call. I could be wrong. We have it linked somewhere. I'll have to look at that. But it listed David as a special projects coordinator for the Lehigh Valley Red Cross Aid Service Center in 1990. The classmate who posted the memorial said that David was extremely conservative and would sharply criticize males who seemed gay while in school. He is skeptical that Dave could have been doing something like this, though it lists him as Dave Branton and gives his age and it gives the area where he was located. So like how, I mean, I went to school with a girl named Chelsea Brown and we almost had the same exact birthday, but that seems like kind of common. Well, and with a last name yes. Brown, like, you know, the odds of multiple people with the last name Branton in the same area. Or the same initial, like, right. so I'm pretty sure it was him. Yeah. And it I mean, there are plenty of people that were closeted and had homophobic tendencies because they didn't want to recognize it in themselves. Yes. As young people. And then as they become adults, they realize who they are. And I mean, we've I don't know that we've seen it in these cases, but I've definitely heard it on a lot of other podcasts of or just in general life of people that are now out of the closet and are, you know, kind of living their life proud of who they are that spent a lot of time before coming out hating those that they're now friends with. Yeah. Um, just because of those different reasons. So, I mean, it's quite possible that's kind of what was going on here with David as well. And that was kind of going to be my next statement about that. Could he have just been a closeted gay? Um, at the time. And is it possible that his sexual orientation could have had something to do with his death? Um, that's a question we're not really sure of. The Lehigh, right. the, the area, the Lehigh Valley area has always kind of been conservative and only recently turned blue. Someone pointed to the attitudes of that time with the movie called Philadelphia, which I have never seen, but it stars Tom Hanks. And that was released in 1993. Um, but basically, it's about a lawyer who is suing a company for being fired because he was HIV positive. Hmm. Some point that maybe David's roommate at the time wasn't just a roommate, though there's really nothing pointing it more than, you know, it being a roommate situation. Plus in articles, it is mentioned that he was on medication for unspecified reasons and everyone jumps to the conclusion that it was AZT for HIV. And to also note, it's not only in case you don't know, uh, it's not only transferred by sex, but can be transferred uh, by people who use IV drugs. Um, and with the claims of him yeah. being a substance abuser. So maybe he 
wasn't gay but still had HIV because of the drug use. Right. Um, and it could make sense because they, like, the family wouldn't comment what the medication was. Everyone was being, like, really unspec- unspecific about it. And at the time, HIV was kind of, like, hot topic. Controversial. Taboo. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. So there's that theory, which is kind of intense. But, like, no one came out forthright and said, like, yes, he was gay or anything like that. There's no, th- no confirmation, like, and if his family did know, I mean, minus Jonathan, no one said right. anything at all. It would make sense if he had HIV, though, for the reasons that you already said. Yeah. I mean, we do have this mystery medication. It would make sense for that to be AZT. And yeah, any if you're sharing needles, which a lot of addicts will do... I mean, you've got a majorly increased probability of contracting it. Oh, yeah. And with him, you know, offering his services at that Valley Red Cross AIDS service center. Right. That's like another, you know, kind of red flag for that. Right. Okay, so next theory. Some people think that his substance abuse problem could have gotten the better of him. Could this also be a reason why his family isn't too keen to talk about it? Could he have OD'd while partaking in substances and someone disposing of his body? I mean, we've heard of these kinds of cases before, and unfortunately it really happens too much. Like, was he partying with someone, OD'd, they didn't know what to do when they panicked? Some people, though I... Don't think so. Some people think maybe he was just in like a secluded area and died on his own, but like he probably would have been found. Yeah. Right. But we do know that you're more likely to have issues when you're using drugs because you're not around the best people, really. Um, right. Right. Yeah. And you're often not in well lit or highly traveled areas. Yes. Or anything like that. So if something does go wrong, you know, the animals might find you before people That's do. That's true. In some cases, especially in highly wooded areas. Oh, yeah. But, like, there's not a lot of information about his drug use. Like, his sister said that he used cocaine. His brother touched on it. But, like, he was a lawyer. I'm assuming they would have to do drug tests. And he was a functioning person, like, doing cocaine. Like, I just don't feel like that's, like, a casual thing, like, a night with beers. Like, I feel like that has really, right, really steep down, downhill fall. So, not sure about that. The next one is a mugging gone wrong. David had reported previous muggings before he went missing. On December 11th, 1985, David was robbed while using an ATM at the Bank of Pennsylvania at 9.30 p.m. The robbers then abducted David and drove him to a residence on Gatewood Lane in Bethlehem, where drugs were reported to have been purchased. They then took him back to the same bank and made him withdraw more money. They then took him to a different bank in Bethlehem, where he withdrew even more money. He ended up escaping at 2.15 a.m., but apparently there was only $175 in total that was withdrawn, which blows my mind. Like, that's not a lot of money. Yeah, that seems like a lot of trouble for a very small amount of money. Yeah, that's what I thought. Like, really? Like, I could see, like, a small amount the first one just to see if, like, it would come out and he'd give the right information and work with you. And right. he was a lawyer, so I'm guessing he was, like, dressed decently. Yeah, probably. $175 in 1985 is close to, like, $480 huh. in 2022 money. Still doesn't seem Which, like a lot. No, but a lot of banks, and obviously I don't know what 
the banking limits looked like in 1985, but a lot of banks have a limit for how much cash you can pull out oh. in one transaction and also within one day. So it's possible that the limit maybe specifically with his card or his bank or whatever was just a lower daily limit. That's true. Um, and then, I mean, it does say he escaped, you said it, 215. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible that, like, they took him, he had reached his max, so they took him again after midnight, thinking that maybe it would kind of reset at midnight for a new day, and then had him withdraw more, and then maybe he just hit the max and escaped at that point, or maybe he just didn't have the money in there, but... um so, I mean, it's it's shy of $500 in today's money. So it's still a decent chunk, but I agree it doesn't seem like a whole lot when you consider, like, the types of drugs he was using. I just... Like, it seems like that would go really fast. I just... For somebody... Like, robbing is one thing, but then kidnapping a person, that's a definitely higher, right. different charge. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know. It seemed weird, but the ATMs did have cameras and, like, everything you reported was accurate. Like, at first I was like, oh, was it a setup, like, just to, like, get his money back and get free drugs? Right. But um, apparently it was a brother group. I can't remember their names. I didn't write it down, but they had been caught in other robberies. So it wasn't just, like, a mm. one-off thing. So this was, like, mm. a problem. Uh, but then again, in 1989, he reported a theft the morning call didn't really go into depth on what was stolen, but it just kind of gives you an idea that like this really wasn't the best area back then. And like even today, depending what parts of Allentown you're in, still not the best. So okay. could it be that he got mugged and like something went south? We've heard stories about those. You know, maybe he fought back. Maybe he wasn't as compliant as the first time. Who knows? Right. Then the next one, which we talked about, Grace brought it up, is like the family. Is it possible that they know what happens? It is clear they were a prominent family in this community and they were extremely social as well. Did they not want to go public because they didn't want their name smeared? I mean, it is obvious that he didn't start a new life somewhere else somewhere else because like after almost 30 years nothing has been used by him like nothing has mm -hmm. been hit and like right. maybe it's easier back then to start a new life but like i couldn't even imagine wanting to run away and like starting like i can barely start my own life with my own right now like how am i supposed to start a new life right. with no information no identity and can't do anything like officially on the books right and that's what i have to think is like to get a job now, I mean, you have to have multiple forms of ID and that's going to include like your social security card or a birth certificate. So unless you found someone that makes a really compelling fake. Yeah. I don't know how you're going to get through even just that process or like a credit check yeah. or, you know, anything. And there was no mention of like large amounts of money being taken. You know, he still he had left his firm. I mean, it wasn't like a prepared leaving or anything. And honestly, his family hasn't been public about it really at all until really his brother put out that book recently. Um, right. And it's just like super disheartening. And like if his brother book does have like some credibility, that would just be terrible. Like how could a family ever do that? Like just like when I hear cases of mothers killing their kids, it just breaks my heart. Like I don't get it. Yeah. And then the last one is suicide. Could it have been that he had so much pressure on him from his family? Because, 
you know, they're this like perfect family. Maybe he was a closeted gay. Maybe he just couldn't figure out a way to come out or maybe he was struggling with it. Or maybe his family thought that he could change because we hear those even to today. We think, you know, hear the stupid comments of like, you know, they're not born like it. It's a choice or like, you know, they're confused and things like that. It just his family doesn't feel like the most welcoming, loving family. And that can be hard to deal with. Um, Yeah. I feel like if it was suicide, then that kind of, I feel like I'll only believe that if the family knew what happened and covered it up. Like, I just don't see him going out on his own, committing suicide, and then where is his body? That's true. Like, that's what I don't buy when people say missing persons cases are suicide, because you can't kill yourself and then hide your body. Like, it just, it doesn't... Right. Work out. But if his family was to cover it up, maybe that was part of it. Yeah. He- when I wonder too if, and this is just kind of out there, but welcome to my brain. Um, if he did have HIV and maybe he was steadily declining, the medications for it were really just starting in the 90s they, or 80s and 90s. They weren't great. Um, it wasn't the level of healthcare that we have now for HIV and AIDS. So maybe he had seen like other friends that had it or were suffering greatly, or he was suffering greatly. And so maybe he did die by suicide, but had either really like planned it really well, or had somebody else that knew what he was doing that could then like kind of help him pull it off if that makes almost sense. like an assisted to, suicide basically yeah right. like just to avoid the continuation of pain if it was progressing really far or um you know anything like that maybe he just kind of saw that as i'm in pain my family is like disparaged because of me so this is the best way to do it and I fully don't agree that the best way to handle anything is is death by suicide. But, um, I mean, when you're in that mental state, drugs are going to increase that thought process as well. So he wasn't in a good place. Maybe it was something that he just coordinated with someone, which also seems weird that they wouldn't have come forward with any information. But I'm grasping at random straws, yeah. which I'm good at doing. <laughs> No, it's definitely hard. There's not a lot of information and it doesn't really look like there was a solid investigation done at the initial time. And like so much time had passed and it's just kind of sad. So David Lee Brandon was a white 32 year old male when he went missing. He would currently be 62 years old as of the 17th of July. So we are recording it on the 17th, I believe. So it has. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yep. He is 62 years old today. He weighed 170 pounds, was 5 feet 10 inches, had brown hair. He had blue hazel eyes and he wore glasses. If you have any information regarding David's disappearance, please call the Allentown Police Department at 610-437-7741. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. 
This episode was researched and hosted by Chelsea Brown. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. The music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.